I have always, always been a knife fanatic. Who wants to be more than just knife, custom knife makers who want that knife business? I absolutely think that men should have knives. If you're doing anything, you almost always need a knife to cut something open. You put your phone down for a while, go to church, eat steak, and exercise. Take responsibility for yourself. Don't let excuses get in the way. You're a man living in the modern world in a time when men and manhood are not what they once were. You live life on your own terms. You're self-sufficient. You think for yourself and you march to the beat of your own drum. When life knocks you down, you get back up because in your gut, you know that's what men do. You're a badass and a warrior. And on the days when you forget, we are here to remind you who you really are. Welcome to the Sovereign Man Podcast, where we aim to make men masculine again. I'm your man, Nikki Ballou. We have two very special guests here today. Today's guests are Andrew and John Demko, the guiding lights behind Demko Knives. Everyone who listens to the show knows I'm a knife nut. I love collecting knives. I'm about to get my first Demko knife, and uh, these gentlemen were gracious enough to uh, agree to come on the show. Welcome, gents. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good to have you here. So listen, why don't we start with you telling us your story? Andrew, maybe you should start by how you got into knife making in the first place and how Demco Knives came to be. And then, John, we'll let you chime in on that. and We'll take it from there. Okay, so I have always, always been a knife fanatic since like one of my earliest toys I can remember was having some little pen knife that was super dull. And my parents let me carry around like like. Before even I was in elementary school, I always had pocket knives and pen knives and, and weapons, hammers or, 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 you know, and we grew up, our parents have a martial arts school. So we grew up around martial arts and seeing like, you know, Japanese sword work and stuff like that. So uh, I was always into to weapons and in particular knives. Um, and I had, you know, luckily for my dad, I had this bet with him. I wanted this sword set really badly and he, He's like, well, if you get on a roll all year or whatever, you know, I'll get you the sword set. Well, luckily for him, I never got on a roll all year. Well, <laughs> can't say I was the greatest student. Um, but so then in seventh grade, we, we had metal shop and we forged chisels. And you started off with some 01 tool steel and we forged it down. And to, for, to pass the, the, the class, we had to forge it. It couldn't be horribly ugly. Had to heat treat it. Uh, harden it, temper it, um, and then it had to cut through a piece of mild steel, and then it had to hit a piece of harder steel and not break. And that opened my, because I knew, you know, Japanese swords were forged, and that really opened my eyes to uh, being able to, uh, I said to the teacher, well, can we forge knives? And he said, well, you can, this is the same basic procedure for forging any cutlery tool. So after that, from seventh grade on, it was it was all knives for me. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> for you, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so you got into knife making from from seventh grade on. So how'd you how'd you go from being a knife nut to actually making it your profession? You know, it is, I tell people it's funny when they're trying to get started now. It's it's a lot easier because you can get all the parts you need and you can get all the grinders you need. And throughout high school, you know. Actually, my friend who works with me, Mike Wallace, custom knife maker, we would together, we didn't have any money. We were just kids. We would together, you know, 
spend half and half on a like a um a sears uh grinding like a, a regular like a bench grinder and we would grind knives and grind knives until it broke or until we burn it up and then we would pitch in you know they were like 75 dollars we'd pay like 30 35 dollars each and we'd kill another one and we killed quite a few of them and eventually you know we used to look at blade magazine and we saw the the belt grinders that they offered and they're uh, probably belt or grinders or um different ones and eventually probably late in high school i started building my own grinders um and then that really you know that really skyrocketed it to uh to where we could actually grind more than one or two knives without uh burning up the, the motors and we had a um kind of a warehouse a scrap warehouse not too far from us that sold power hacksaw blades and the power hacksaw blades were i think they were 18 inches long probably 18 inches long could be 24 two inches wide some were completely hardened and some just had welded hearted edge and we used to get those and we grind the teeth off and you know knife guys know that those saw blades are made of some really good tough durable steel uh, you can make great knives out of saw blades as giant hacksaw blades and we could grind we could get those knives we could we could get those blades grind all the teeth off cut in a handle wrap it up with paracord i used to cut up like old leather you know like belts you wear a belt like an old belt cut it put it under the paracord wrap it all up and then we would just grind the you know very rude uh sharpened edges on it and they were great and they were tough uh, so we yeah we we had to really do any any anything we could to to actually get functional knives made at the time because, you know, we couldn't just go buy that we knew of knife steel. And, you know, we couldn't buy, like, couldn't even make folding knives because there was no such thing as buying pivot pins or, like, now you can buy all the parts you need and, you know, make your own knife, basically, or buy all the hardware you need and still, you know, still make your own blades and handles, but you can buy all the round parts and all the screws. And at that time, there was, like, nothing, hardly anything that I can think of that was offered commercially to to jumpstart the, the knife maker. Uh so we learned a lot just by, uh, you know, by necessity, I guess. Sure. And, you know, what year did you sell your first knife to somebody? Well, my, my first, I, you know, I had sold knives, but I didn't make good. I, <laughs> I'm not going to say they were good knives. I didn't. So we spent the whole, um, the whole junior high and high school making knives out of saw blades and other hard steels that, you know, tool steels that we found that were pretty hard, um, hard blades for lathes and stuff like that. And I think I was probably a senior. And then I found out about buying from like um, Sheffield knives and stuff, buying steel at that time, ATS 34 was like the, the coolest steel in the world. And then we would buy ATS 34, grind it on my homemade belt grinder, send it off to Paul Boss for heat treat and put my car to handles on it and, and uh, press kayak sheets. And so that was about in 1993 when I actually made it, you know, what would be called like a, a custom knife, not just, not just a redneck or hillbilly with a, with a, you know, grinding down saw blades, but actual buying, you know, knife grade steel, uh, making it the normal stock removal methods, heat treating it and uh, making a finished knife. So that was probably about 1993 or 94. Wow. Why did that? There you go. And so when did it become, you know, like a going concern. You know what I mean? We're like, hey, I'm making a living at this. This is something that can really feed my family, fulfill me, all that good stuff. Well, that, it was my goal uh, the, the whole time. I had no other goals. After high school, I went um, 
to the Art Institute for Industrial Design because all I wanted to do is design knives. That's all I did was design knives. And I went to my first job interview and I showed my portfolio. I don't even remember what it was for, some type of point of purchase ad type of things. And all I had was knives in my, in my portfolio. And the guy's like, hey, dude, maybe you should try design something other than knives. And I was like, yeah, not really interested. So <laughs> I didn't, it, I was, it. it was my plan since day one. Wow. So it was your plan since day one, but when did it become a reality? When, when did you like actually have enough customers, enough traction, enough momentum that, yeah, this is happening? Well, I ended up be becoming a custom knife maker. And then I was at a knife show um, and Cold Steel, the owner of Cold Steel, Lynn Thompson approached me at a show. Sure. Five, right? Like, yeah, I, I, 2000. No, it was earlier than that. 2000. And, yeah, maybe 2004, maybe something like that. You know, I yeah. was just, I was just making knives. I'd make like, I probably made 50 knives a year and sold them to. I, I was an electrician at the time, and um, I, I sold a lot to the guys in the trade. You know, so I could make 50, 50 nice, cool hunting knives and sell those a year. And so I was attending knife shows, and Blaine uh, Thompson bought the the knife that became the AK-47 Foley knife off of me. And he, and I made them some other samples and some stuff. I did some freelance work with him. He said, Hey, do you want to come on full time as a, he's a knife maker designer. And uh, so I did that. Um, That's awesome, man. And that was two, 2004, two, two, no, six, it was 2000, six. It was 2006. And so up until from 2000, well, I worked for them for about two years, just freelance stuff. 2004, 2006, I came on full-time uh, as the head of R&D. <laughs> and I did that for until whenever, 2020 or 21, whenever they, whenever they sold. At the time, at the, at the end of that, when he, he was just a young kid. He's just, when I, was in, when I was in high school, making knives and swords in the garage, he would just be wandering around because he's 16 years younger than me. Yeah, 15, 16. 15 years younger than me. He would just be running around looking at big drill bits and, and say, oh, look at this drill bit, bad as hell, and hitting things. And just it's just kind of hanging out in the shop with me, which was in my parents' garage. Um, and so later on through through Cold Steel, he, you know, he grew up and, you know, became a young adult and started working with me. Well, I graduated in high school in 2007. And that's when I, as soon as I graduated high school, I came on. Yeah. Came on in 2007. With Cold, Cold Steel. Steel. Yeah. Yeah. So he just had just started working with Cold Steel, and so what's Lynn Thompson like, man? He looks like this larger than life dude. That could be a, a whole series of podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Lynn, <laughs> Lynn is, uh, you know, the Lynn is. <laughs> Lynn, I tell you what, there's no one loves uh, knives and the knife business more than Lynn. That's true. That that I can tell you. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's been nothing but great to me all these years. So, and I still talk to him. In fact, I talked to him. I think more since since he sold Cold Steel because you know we're in we're in Pennsylvania. He's in California. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of work remotely out of our shop, and then eventually Cold Steel set up a shop in our in our town that we work out of. Um, but yeah, I still talk to Lynn quite a few, couple times a week at least, uh, just about knives <laughs> and stuff like that. You know. I've never met the man. I'd love to interview him one day. So uh, I think he'd be a, a heck of an interview, but he just seems like a larger than life character. 
He speaks powerfully, eloquently, with a lot of passion and enthusiasm about knives. And th those cold steel videos, you know, w before YouTube started throttling them, they would get like millions and millions and millions of people viewing yeah. their videos of them chopping, you know, pig parts and chopping like rope and things like that. It was just wild watching watching those videos. Big yeah. part of what got me into knives was watching cold steel videos on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> being on, being on set for that was quite interesting. Yeah, you should, we we lived a few of those, quite a few of those uh, proof DVDs. Um, Twelve hours a day of cutting stuff up. Yeah, it's, uh, that's awesome. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing better than taking on a bunch of pig carcasses with a katana. That's that's, <laughs> that's for sure. fun, man. It looks like a ton of fun. Well, Lynn would super love super slow mo love action of the knife going through the <laughs> the, the carcass, man. It was wild. Yeah. Does, does Lynn do interviews? Oh, Lynn would love. Yeah, Lynn will do it. He love. He loves. He loves talking the business. So yeah, he would. Love Great. That. Let's make it happen. Yeah. But, we'll uh, so you were with Cold Steel till 2020, 2021. Then you set up your own shop. Talk about that. What was that like? What made that happen? Well, so it was. I was doing some projects with Lynn out in California, and he was working on because Dimco Knives has always kind of existed as his own entity. You know, as he was doing stuff for Gold Steel, we were still doing custom knives here and there. And I moved back from California to here in 2016. And then that's when I started doing Demco Knives full time. And we launched the AD-15 with the Scorpion Lock. Um, and we were just making like full handmade customs. And it was kind of like a, a way to prove that because we knew Gold Steel was eventually going to sell like when... You know, we didn't know when. But we, we knew through the grapevine, Lynn yeah. was ready to retire and sell. Yeah. And um, good for him. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, you know, that's just what happens. And uh, so the, the AB 15 was kind of like a, a test run of like, can we produce knives in our shop in America at a production level to, you know, pay our salaries and actually have a real business out of it, not just taking custom orders and making knives in the evening and doing that stuff. We wanted to, we wanted to be more than just knife, custom knife makers. We wanted to have a knife business. And uh, so that, that was in 2016. Then as those sales picked up, we started adding machines. And uh, one of the most important things I did in that time was like build my network of dealers to work with so that as we continue to grow, I, I had channels to move these knives into. And, um, you know, those dealers have huge sales networks. And that's that's how we really kind of built the business we have was between proving out how to manufacture that knife in America and just kind of slowly learning how to sell them all amen i mean your um your knives i mean the scorpion lock that's a pretty revolutionary lock right you want to talk a little bit about that how, how you came about coming up with that well my whole my whole thing and even when i remember telling my buddy mike if you could only this was back in 1993 i said to him if you could only produce or design a because a really good lock uh you could you could build a whole business that is really a difficult thing to do uh as you know that's why up until everybody started copying the atlas or the axis lock mm -hmm. yeah. benchmade axis lock because the patent just ran out about a year or so ago, yeah or yeah. whenever it did before that everybody made liner locks and there's very few other locks other than maybe a lock back and a liner lock the reason being it's very very difficult to design a a worthy lock that you know is 
has all the attributes that a lock needs and the main attribute is be production friendly. Yeah, right? to be manufactured. Yeah, products. you can't just most importantly. You can't just make one, you know, and be like, oh yeah, yeah, it works. Yeah. You have to make a thousand or ten thousand. Does it work all ten thousand times? You know, the repeatability. Um so my my whole thing was being really my my main thing is lock design and forward design. You know, I, we do fixed plates and I love that stuff too. But I really like to tinker with locking mechanisms. Um, and I have had quite a few even before I did the, the triad lock and the scorpion lock that were just, you know, weren't that great there. Oh, there yeah. was one really cool lock that you had before the scorpion lock. Um, it kind of added an assist to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had so all, there, all kinds of trinkety locks. Yeah, there's a lot of still like things that he's come up with that could eventually come to market once they get refined more too. Yeah, were, it's like reaching back into like 2000, like 14, even. Yeah, and stuff like that. Ultimately, though, the reason why even I designed the Scorpion lock is after I was doing, I was making triad. Well, what our triad it wasn't really called a triad lock, maybe that's called yeah, Steel's trademark yeah. name, but I was making that knife and um, very difficult to produce, very, very tolerances are super, super tight within a half a thousand to get those on and off to, to work perfectly. Once you hit that tolerance though, they're awesome. Um, and I was like, man, and we were getting ready for the Ohio knife show. And it, I had a rough day. We used to have, cause we made everything completely by hand, manually milled everything. And sometimes you would have something almost work and you just tinker with it. And eight hours later, guess what? You, you're shut of luck and nothing works. It was just, <laughs> it was horrifying. Oh yeah. There was, sometimes it would feel like a week of work just like went, went down. If you, when you're doing the manual milling, you just do one measurement wrong. That's oh, horrible. And I remember going to bed thinking, man, if I could only replace the locking, the, either the hook that goes in the, the trad lock or lock back the hook, I could only replace that with something that was commercially available um, and perfect every time, which is a, which is a standard dowel pin. And that's what that's what's pressed into the top frame of the line or the, the scorpion lock that fits you know, that goes into the blade. So then we were able to instead of making that really intricately shaped triad lock lock, we were able to just use this dowel pen that was pressed into the the frame. The top, we call that the yoke, the top of the scorpion lock. Uh, and it just you know it took away a, a, one whole facet of the triad or you know making that lock back style thing with instead of making two perfect parts, you only had to make one perfect part. Because the pin was the pin, and they're you know they're always accurate enough. Um, but every every time I do a new lock or a new design, it's always an improvement. It's always something that was a pain in the butt on the last one. I'm thinking, well, how can I get around this? How can I improve? So I feel that all of the locks are an improvement over each other. Um, that said, I do believe that there's not one perfect lock. Um, I'd like to tell you that there are perfect locks only the locks we sell, but really there's probably a perfect lock per each design. Um, for example, if you take a Sabenza, oh, would a lock back or try lock be stronger? Sure. But you'd never have that knife fold completely in a handle like it does. So some, some knives, you know, per the design of the knife, not thinking about the lock, um, are better with a liner lock or frame lock or lock back or whatever. Um, that's what's so interesting about locks is it's just not one lock to, to for every knife. Uh, it's, you know, you can almost, it's just circumstantial. Yeah, you can assign locks to the designs almost and depending on what you want. So a lot, there's a lot of, uh, facets there. Yeah. 1000% man. 
Um, I'm a I'm a fan of uh, the Chris Reeve knives. I own a few of them. I got a Sabenza. I got an, an Unumzan, and I got their um, their fixed blade the the Green Beret um, uh, knife that they mm -hmm. have. Uh, it, it's good. So Chris Chris Reeve was a forward thinking man. There's no question about it. Uh, yeah. He came up with some pretty cool uh, innovations inside the knife industry. But as of you, so 2016, you guys decided to um, go into the production business rather than just custom business for yourselves in a bigger and more powerful way. So today's 2023. How many knives do you guys put out a year in your production business? For me to really give you a good answer on that, I just a rough ballpark. Like, how many knives are you guys producing? Because, like, you know, it's... um, as far as the MG line last year, we, we did like eight hundred, maybe. The, so that's the American made production. That's like a a four hundred to six hundred or six fifty price point. Why not? Yeah, and we're we're hoping to more than triple that in the near future here. Um, you know, we're, we're bringing more stuff in house and uh, we want to, we want to keep the same quality control and um, just push the production to, to meet the demand. So there's not people emailing me every day about that. They don't want to buy the night for double the price on eBay and stuff like that. Like, well, your I, stuff I would, sells out super quick, right? Your higher end American made knives sell out awfully quick, right? They basically, yeah, usually, I mean, when it goes to a, a bigger deal like just we work with some smaller dealers too but like the more well-known guys like knife center dlt blade hq they if they get a batch of like 100 knives that it probably sells out in about two minutes so you're basically telling me that if you guys were able to triple your production you'd probably sell it out equally quickly yeah i mean there's there's going to be a, a ceiling there somewhere but if a company like dlt sells out your knives in two minutes I'm thinking you could tenfold your American production and sell it out. That's that's my yeah. that's my that's my take on it. I, w I would I would agree. Yeah. Y you know, so your bottleneck from a business point, I'm putting my business hat on because what I do for a living besides my men's podcast is I work with entrepreneurs and I help them grow. Uh, you know, in, in, in a nutshell, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a few minutes. But damn, that's a hell of a thing. That's a hell of a great problem to have. To have yeah. way too much demand and not be able to meet it. Like, you, you guys should just, like, just thank God every day. You should be so grateful. You should be thanking the Almighty for what He's created in terms of, of, of an attraction to what you guys do. Uh, Andrew, you, you know, your name, I've heard your name for ever since I got into knife collecting. I got into knife collecting in 2017. Uh, I, I went from zero knives to right now I've got about 110 in my collection overall. And um, I've got like, this is my my home office desk, but I got knives all over the place. So this is a Spartan Blades fixed blade I got here. I got a custom, uh, I don't know if you guys heard of Greg Lightfoot. He's a Canadian knife maker. This is one of his puppies. Yeah, I, I love this guy. It's got a little bit of Timascus here. That's why I got excited about getting the Timascus from you guys because I really love the Timascus. There's about a dozen, you know, half a dozen more here on my desk, all over the place, just strewn about. And I've got, um, I've got a, you know, a, 
a katana that I ordered from Zombie Tools out in Montana, uh, hanging around here somewhere. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. I, I look at knives, and it's my opinion, and this is just my opinion, that the American cutlery business, which is around a billion dollars a year as a whole, could easily be five-folded, easily, with good production and good marketing and putting it out there. And when I spoke with you, men, at the beginning of the show, I was talking to you about how the Sovereign Man podcast is all about helping uplift and elevate men. I believe that men are looking for that in this day and age. The world is crapping all over men. They're calling men bad and toxic and wrong. Young boys are getting a message that just by being a born a boy, there's something wrong with you. You know, so a lot of them think that's messed up, but they're looking for answers. They're looking for guides, for role models. A lot of them don't have strong father figures at home or any father figures at home. And one of the things that I believe makes a man a man is that he's capable. You know, he, he's useful. He's able to do things. And, and that means use tools. And what is man's oldest tool? Well, it's a knife, right? So if a man's got a good knife or a good few knives in his collection, that's powerful. In, in my opinion, that kind of marketing message, that kind of conversation being had by knife makers will boost up knife sales. You'll have more young men who've never thought of buying a knife look at buying a knife. The main reason I bought a knife is because I bought a course from a guy named Donald Miller, and he gave um, us an example of good marketing, good storytelling, and he showed an ad put out by Gerber Knives called Hello Trouble. I don't know if you men have ever seen that ad. If you haven't, you ought to watch it. It's pretty darn amazing. I watched that ad, and I went out and I bought my first knife since I was a little kid, and then I got hooked on, on, on the whole process. So that's my opinion. I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Do you agree with me? Do you think men should have knives, and do you think this is an underserved market that could potentially grow, not just for your business, but overall? I absolutely think, yes, that men should have knives. I think they should have guns, too. So Damn straight. <laughs> Damn straight. But we're talking to a knife maker here today, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, you've got to have a knife for sure. That's I don't I mean, I can't even stand not having a knife. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never not. I mean, I mean, other than when I was in high school, it's the last time I didn't carry a knife. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're right as far as the, the masculinity is the, you know, part of that is your ability to go out in the world and make change and extension of making that change is using the tool. And just like you said, it's man's oldest tool. And, you know, do, if you're doing anything, you almost always need a knife to cut something open or just, just to work on something or even just to eat food sometimes. I use my pocket knife to open a, a pack of ground meat every single day. And I mean, there's you could get scissors, but... <laughs> Right. You know, it's it's not the same. It's not the same kind of no. um, assertion that, you know, when you use your pocket knife to, to do a daily tool, you know, daily tasks, and then you use it in your everyday life and different things because it's you're more self-capable. It's in your pocket. 110%. 110%. Uh, it's, I use my knives every single day. So I, I got a, a couple of books today that were, you know, uh, wrapped in plastic packaging. God knows why they do that to books, but so take my knife, slit it open, done. Um, I eat steak several times a week. 
love steak, right? And um, the crappy steak knives that they sell in the stores, I just wasn't digging them. So my buddy Ernest Emerson, he uh, he actually made a couple of steak knives, a fixed blade and a folding uh, uh, steak knife. I bought them both, and that's all I used. They cut meat so well; they're just fantastic. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Ernie's a good knife designer too. He really thinks through how to make some good knives. So the the steak knives are great. So I use that on a you know three four times a week as well, and. I think there's a thing about having a knife for me it makes me feel capable it makes me feel like i can get shit done you know and that's my take on a knife and i think every man should have a knife for for all those reasons and i think demco knives man you guys you guys make really really fantastic knives they're gorgeous knives to look at but they're also super super functional and the um the ad20 uh is a great knife i, I can't wait to get mine and um, i'm gonna i'm gonna buy the titanium one once they come back in stock i think they're sold out everywhere <laughs> i mean i don't think a single one of your oh, dealers man. has one left yeah yeah the, the titanium 20.5 we did is sold out that's the one we're, we're bringing that back in 20 cv and then the, the MG, the, the American-made one we do, the, the tie is always the first to sell out. People love that. Yeah. Hmm. But you're right. that Our our design philosophy is always the, to be used. Not to speak ill of other knife makers, but I feel like people get lost a lot that knives actually are tools. Yeah. And they, you know, we focus a lot on, like, the, you know, the grips, the ergonomics of it, the actual blade being able to cut. And... You know, it's you get into some weird places in the market where people want to overbuild knives so much that then they can't cut anymore. Then is, is it still a knife at that point? And then you know you get the other end where knives are so delicate or that useful. And you know there's there's purpose of uses for certain things and there's places for some of that. But the majority of our stuff is going to be your everyday user um, or hard user. Yep, I wholeheartedly agree. There That's are, why it says performance first on the yeah. old T-shirts right there. That was my lift up. Yeah, man. So listen, uh, throw a medium T-shirt in, in one of the packages you send me. Well, you just charge it on my credit card. I, I I love wearing I love wearing gear, man. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great. I didn't even know you had shirts. Otherwise, I'd ordered some when, when we first spoke. But uh, oh yeah, I got you. Uh, that'd be great, man. That'd be great. Ernest Emerson makes some crazy shirts for his knives. I've actually bought a lot of his shirts. They're, they're, they're pretty darn awesome. Um, so cool, man. Cool. So, gents, uh, I, I love what you're doing uh, inside of your company. Thank you for making the knives that you do. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to purchase one of your knives. I'm looking forward to this being the first of many Demco in my collection. And um, I want to just wrap up and land the plane on this episode by asking you to just give some advice to young men today that are looking for how to be good men, useful men, uh, and to, to be able to hold their heads up high in this day and age, because it's my opinion that that's what men need. They need other good men to show them the way. Men learn from other men. So Give us some good advice, maybe two, three bullet point pieces of advice each for the men listening to the show. You want me to do this? I'm the dad. I'm the dad. I got, I got young boys, so here's what you're going to do. 
you put your phone down for a while, go to church, eat steak, and exercise. And I, and I would add, not everybody's down with this, but I would say go to bed early and get up early. Okay, listen, man. Andrew, you and I are going to get along just fine. Just fine. Eat steak. Man, speaking my language. That man speaking my language. That's the only thing I eat is steak. 99% just steak. Exercise. Yeah. And um, go to bed early. I agree with all of that. Um, I eat a lot of steak myself. Um, you know, I read this book on a daily basis. Um, uh, I started reading it at the beginning of January. The goal is within 18 months to be done with the whole thing. So there you go. Um, very powerful uh, for a man to uh, be in touch with uh, his faith in his church and to be around people. Exercise is super critical. Um, I'm actually writing a book with uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, uh, U.S. Army Rangers retired. He is famous for having written the books on killing and on combat that are required reading by the Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps and at West Point, and he goes and he speaks all over the world to law enforcement and military, and he's a big advocate of sleep. He thinks we're all sleep deprived, so we're writing a book to help people be less sleep deprived, so I'm a big believer in that. Well said, man. Really well said. Love it, Andrew. And listen, man, um, I'd love to have you both back, and Andrew, if, if it's cool with you, um, Get John to give you my cell phone. I'd like to be in touch with you and maintain a friendship with you as well. I think it'd be great. Sounds good. Sounds All right, good. John, you're up. What are yours? <sighs> There's nothing after that. Well, just... <laughs> he's got to be original. He can't steal yours. That's no, no, no. So, so this is he's much smarter than me. So he'll have something good. No, you you need to take responsibility for yourself. You know, don't let excuses get in the way things like that it's like everything when i when i talk to like my sister's kids and other people it's always this is that this is that this is that you're responsible for yourself like the excuse doesn't matter it just doesn't you you make your own decisions you have to take responsibility for yourself and that goes right back into carrying a knife because you're responsible for yourself you need to do things you do it you can do it yourself and that's one of many tools you can have and my other bit of advice is read a lot even from authors that you might not agree with uh, politically or philosophy, you know, their philosophy, but it helps you uh, broaden your worldview. I, I wake up every morning at about 5, 10, and I read for 45 minutes to an hour before I come into work. Good man. All right. One more, brother. That's two. Two. <laughs> You sure uh, being responsible for yourself and not making excuses? Was that's kind of the same, brother. No offense, but that's the same. We're not going to give you a pass on that one, but good. Nice try. <laughs> I, I used up all the good ones, the steak and the weightlifting. Yeah. So. <laughs> you did. Spend time in nature. Spend time in nature. Carry a knife. Carry a knife. <laughs> and when you do carry a knife. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's... um. It's so easy with all the technology that, that always your attention is, is is always taken up. And I and that this isn't my own original idea. I, I got it from a book is, um, you know, sometimes I, I consider that uh, an information fast. Sometimes you just need to disconnect and be idle so you can think. And part of that's being in nature because that's a great time to do it. I'll I have one for you, too. 
Yeah. I got a good one. This is just, I have to tell this to the kids too, is, you know, be respectful to people, even when you don't agree with them. No, absolutely. Because there's a yeah. lot of people that don't agree or I don't agree with, but you know, that doesn't mean they're a-holes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, know? don't, you don't need to hate them for it. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you don't agree with them. Although there are people that are a-holes. Well, yeah, that's, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, I agree with you on everything you men said. Um, I read a lot. I've read over 4,000 books in my lifetime. Uh, and I read the old fashioned way paper. I don't, you know, not audio books. I don't count that as reading for me anyways. And um, not only that, I write a lot. I've written 10 books. And John, if you give me your um, address, I'll send you a few. Uh, it looks like you're into reading, but uh, I'll show you a few of mine. This is one I co-wrote with a client, a uh, business owner about how to create a million dollar year income. This is one on uh, mindset. This is one on uh, the power of connecting, going into your network. This is for somebody looking to start a business for the first time, Thought Leader's Journey, first edition. Um, this book uh, is a, is a uh, political, cultural book I wrote with Wayne Allen Root to um, put a stop to wokeness in uh, corporate America. It was endorsed by President Donald J. Trump, which I'm very proud of. Uh, he talked about it on social media. So there it is. That's me and Wayne. Um, this is a second book Wayne and I wrote together. That's a list of companies to buy from. This is a list of companies to boycott. And this is a book I put together for little kids when my kids were little, teaching them about capitalism. Kathy Capitalist and Johnny Jobmaker. So there nice. you go. Um, <laughs> I'd be honored if you let me send you a couple of books, John, and I'd love you to read them and tell Absolutely. me what you think. Yeah. Text me an address. I'll, I'll, um, I'll contact Amazon and get them to ship it to you. But it was an honor having you here on this show. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing your story with the, uh, the audience here today. God bless you. Baloo out. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Man Podcast. If you're ready to take charge of your life and become the man you've always wanted to be, we invite you to join the movement at SovereignMan.ca.